2: From the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk, Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson.
0: It is Wednesday, September 14th, 2022. Welcome to the Guy Benson Show. I am your host, Guy Benson. Thank you very much for being here every single weekday. 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time and around the clock on demand totally free on our podcast. Guy dot com is our website. It's all right there. Guy dot com. You can also check out Foxnewspodcast.com dot com or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on social media at Guy Benson show Twitter and Instagram. If you're new around here, thank you for being here. A special shout out to you. I'm the political editor at townhall.com, also a Fox News contributor. I'm scheduled to be on Fox News at night this evening in the midnight hour Eastern, 9 p.m. here in the West. I'm doing the show from Los Angeles today and again tomorrow. Very glad you're here. Here's the lineup today. We'll get to our first guest in a moment. In our next hour, the middle hour, Carol Markowitz, columnist, will be here. A lot to get to with Carol. Looking forward to that discussion. Andy McCarthy, former federal prosecutor, a lot to ask him about on the Trump Mar-a-Lago stuff, a new development on the Russia investigation, the Durham investigation. Remember that? Also something that absolutely stunned me about 9-11. I saw a story from CBS News, I think it was yesterday, and I had to do a double take. We will ask Andy about that. And in our final hour, Herschel Walker, Georgia Bulldogs legend, and now Republican nominee for U.S. Senate in Georgia. He will be here for a one-on-one interview at the top of the 5 o'clock hour Eastern time. You don't want to miss that. And we will, of course, post all of this content at GuyBensonShow.com later on this evening. As we begin today's show, let's bring in our first guest. Josh Krossauer is politics editor, senior politics reporter at Axios, and a Fox News radio political analyst. Josh, it is great to have you back. Guy, great to be back on the show. All right. I wanted to begin with sort of the breaking news last night out of New Hampshire. We had talked about the primary, one of the last primaries in the country, a big Senate race up there. We had Governor Sununu on the program earlier in the week talking about his endorsement in that race. Of course, also primaries in both of the House races in that state. And given the right environment and slate of candidates, it was at least possible that Republicans could sweep. All three of those races, Senate and both House races, they will definitely win the gubernatorial race with Sununu at the top of the ticket there. And, well, we saw what happened last night. And it seems like we have this theme now where you have Democrats pouring lots of money in to support certain candidates that are maybe more extreme, they believe are more beatable, very aligned with Trump. And that Gives a boost, a money boost to those campaigns, and an awful lot of Republican primary voters want precisely those kinds of candidates, and that is what we got in all three of the primaries last night. Your thoughts on those races and your reactions about what they mean?
3: Yeah, Guy, I mean, the, what you said is, is spot on that the more MAGA oriented candidates, the more populist candidates, even though none of them were endorsed by Trump, none of them got in Trump did not get involved in the New Hampshire races, but folks channeling his his anti-establishment anger at the political system won all three of the big races, the Senate race against Maggie Hassan and these two swing House seats uh, that are going to determine which party holds the the House majority. Uh, The the biggest uh, upset was the Senate race where you had a a retired general, Don Baldock. Who did not air a single ad on television was outspent by five, six, seven times by both Republican super PAC aligned with McConnell. Even Democrats were putting some money into the race, trying to stop uh, the more establishment Republican from winning. And yet, Balduck, despite being outspent, despite having the no, the biggest spending Republican for Balduck, going to
0: the. The biggest spending for Baldick effectively came from the Democrats.
3: That's right. The Democrats were involved in the primary and uh, boosted Baldick's uh, prospects. But uh, there was no money that Baldick himself put on television, and -hmm. yet he still won in the primary. And, and, And Democrats think that that seat, that Senate seat of Maggie Hassan's is much more likely to stay in their hands as a result of Baldick's nomination.
0: When we talked to the governor, Governor Sununu on Monday, he explained why he had endorsed Chuck Morse. Who was the sort of the more establishment guy? He was the Senate president. And some of the polling that I had seen showed that Morse was down, in some cases, double digits to Baltic, despite this huge fundraising disadvantage and Baltic not being on TV and all of that. Sununu, it seems, helped close gap pretty significantly. And then you start looking at, okay, well, what actually came into play? One of the arguments that the Democrats make, and, and let me just pause Josh for a second and say this, and it's important to stipulate. Republican voters are the ones responsible for what the Republican Party does and the types of candidates that are nominated. The Democrats can't wave a wand and get someone nominated. Republicans actually have to go vote for these people. And so ultimately there is agency with the voters. At the same time, when you hear some Democrats arguing that the spending in favor of the MAGA, extreme whatever, you know, ultra MAGA candidates that their party claims are a huge threat to democracy and then – They've plowed $50 million behind these types of candidates around the country. They kind of want to pretend like there's there's no moral agency or ethical agency on the left either. And these Democratic PACs and the leadership-making decisions to, to go and help support these people and meddle in the primaries, And they're kind of like, oh, well, we're not really part of the equation at all. This is all about the Republicans and their extremism. Well, if you're in a state like New Hampshire and $3 million comes in to – And $3 million comes in to help Baldick from the Democratic Party. And then last I checked, it was a one-point difference, one percentage point that stopped sort of this comeback from the more establishment-backed guy from Sununu and company. 37 to 36% is what I saw when I checked earlier. I mean, then when races are that close, I think some of these – decisions do come into play in terms of having a real impact and potentially tipping a race one way or another if the race turns out to be really close
3: yeah that's right guy that it, it's, it's easy to say that if this was a blowout that that uh, that that right. baldock might have won otherwise and anyways but this is a one point race it's a 1.3 point margin for baldock and if he didn't have the reinforcements from or you know for, from the democratic party uh, it's easy to see how morse would have pulled it off but this is a playbook that that the democrats have done all all election cycle long they've intervened now in third this is the 13th primary on the Republican side that they've intervened in, and they've prevailed in getting the less electable candidates through six of the 13 times. So these these are three governor's races, two House races, and a Senate race. Uh, th- and this Senate race happens to be a potential majority maker, where yep, uh, if, it's a big it was, one. if it was Morse, you could easily see him being the 51st Senate seat. It's a lot harder to see Baldock pulling off uh, the upset victory. In, in, yeah, and
0: I think the, the quality of candidates is something that you've been talking about a lot. and. I've been saying I'm not that interested in precriminations and we'll see what happens on November the 8th. And if a bunch of candidates who are untested, first-time candidates uh, who are seen as unelectable get elected anyway because of a red wave, let's say, then I think the conversation is different. If Republicans leave a bunch of seats out there floating in the ether – that were there for the taking but fell short because of these problems, then I think the recriminations are going to be intense, and there'll be a big battle royale on the right about, okay, do we need to stop listening to certain figures within the Republican movement as much? Do they have good judgment? And do we need to maybe stop doing exactly what the Democrats want us to do? And we'll see how things actually shake out in November. On that score, Josh, I want to ask you about this. Because I think the conventional wisdom right now is Republicans take the House, Democrats favored to hold the Senate. I'm not totally sure I'm sold on that yet. I think Republicans will win the House. I think the Senate is still very much a jump ball. And that was sort of the way I was feeling about this for a while. Then the piece in the New York Times, the analysis dropped just the other day from Nate Cohn sort of sounding the alarm for Democrats on polling where he's saying, here we go again. If you look at 2016, to some extent 2018, but definitely 2020, the polling, I think, lulled Democrats into a false sense of security in a number of important states. And there's this infographic that they included in the New York Times story. I tweeted it. I posted it at townhall.com where you look at, let's say, 10 or 12 of the most closely contested states in 2020 and the final polling average – of what Biden was supposed to do versus what actually happened. And across the board in those states, almost without exception, Trump overperformed the polls by four to nine points. And what Nate Cohn at the Times is arguing this week is saying, a lot of the places where Democrats look like they're in surprisingly good shape and running way ahead of Joe Biden and some of his struggles, they are the Literally the exact same states and places where the polls got things really wrong two years ago. And he said and the pollsters haven't really adjusted because they don't really know what they did wrong and what happened. I find that very interesting, Josh. Um, I'm not saying that that's something that Republicans need to hang their hat on and say we're fine. The polls will be wrong again. But it is pretty compelling when you look at all the data aligned the way that, that he lays it out. What do you think? Well, look, I, let's look at what the news over the last few
3: days and, and, and the political environment looks like it may be tilting back again in the Republican Party's direction. Inflation is not slowing down according to you know. this month's consumer price index, right? Uh, the stock market uh, has been going downhill the last few days. Uh, so any, any momentum that happened later in the summer looks like it's, it's subsiding, if, if not totally reversing. And, you know, you don't even have to Question the the reliability of the polling, which I do, uh, especially in midwestern states, which have, in the last two or three election cycles, as the New York Times article illustrated, have undercounted these blue collar Trump supporters. They just haven't had, had a hard time reaching them, and not a, not a, not a lot of polls have adjusted their methodology to accommodate for for those realities. But look, I mean, you don't even need to need to have a skeptical eye to the polling to see new public polling in states like Georgia the Herschel Walker and you're talking to later in the show in Nevada showing Republicans actually ahead. Herschel Walker is leading in, in the three latest public polls in, in Georgia, Nevada. You have an Emerson poll came coming out yesterday or I believe yesterday and showing uh yeah. Laxalt, the head of Senator Cortez Masto. And this is September uh, for an incumbent to be losing in September is not a, a good sign for the the democratic party right now. So look, I think it goes race by race. i, I I'm, Pessimistic on Arizona. We've talked about that on the show, guy. I think Republicans have missed opportunities, and New Hampshire, I think, is going to fall off the table because of the nomination of Baldock. But in Georgia, Nevada, I was in Pennsylvania last week. Doctor, yeah, what are you feeling in? Pe- I was
0: going to ask you about that because PA. I have just this weird feeling about PA that what was looking like a Fetterman blowout has become a lot more competitive, and there's just some weirdness going on there. And I know Dr. Oz himself is a, is actually rather weird, but it just I feel like something might be turning there. What did you feel on the ground when you were just there? Well, I can tell you two things, Guy. Number one, Oz's message has evolved
3: into being the Trump-endorsed candidate in the primary to one that was squarely focused on suburban issues from the cost of goods to crime uh, to foreign policy even – it was a crisp message. He had Nikki Haley at the event I went to with him, our, our underscoring the stakes in the in the Pennsylvania Senate race. We reported at Axios that the Chamber of Commerce, more center right, you know, pro business organization, which has not gotten involved in politics as much as they used to, spent three million dollars uh, indirectly to to boost Dr. Oz's campaign because they they view John Fetterman as a as a threat to their their interests. So, the, and the polling too. CBS News has a poll out. Uh, Today, showing Oz trailing by just five points, 52 to 47, which is closer than than it's been in some time. Look, you mentioned the the polling that's been off. There's certain states where the polling has been off pretty significantly. Wisconsin is one of those states. Pennsylvania is another one of those states. So that those Midwestern or Rust Belt states. Uh, Though those are states where I, I do wonder if, if the polling is undersampling Republican and Trump voters in particular. Uh, and so – and everything I've t- – everyone I've talked to, both Democrats and Republicans, think that that Pennsylvania Senate race is going to go down to the wire. It's not going to be a blowout. It's going to be competitive and, and within a few points. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I do think Pennsylvania is very much in the mix and uh, that this is not going to be a race that, that – Looked like it was, it was going to be a Fetterman blowout, uh, in, like we saw in August. It, it, it's going to be very competitive, and the Fetterman dodging of debates, mm-hmm. uh, worries about his health. Those those are going to be challenges for for the Democrat in the home stretch.
0: And it's been a rough couple news cycles for Fetterman as well. The Republicans are hammering him on crime. He's really very left wing on a lot of issues. He also was subsidized. His life was subsidized to the tune of tens of thousands of dollars every year into his late 40s by his parents. So he kind of comes across as this populist guy who wears a hoodie sweatshirt and he's just, you know, a blue collar worker, one of us. His parents were giving him like 40, 50 grand a year while he was a mayor somewhere pursuing very left wing policies. So I think that there are a lot of openings for Team Oz and the Republicans to come after Fetterman on his record on, I think, a very sort of phony mystique that he's built around himself. And then with the health issues on top of it, it could potentially get very interesting. Josh Krausauer is our guest from Axios and a Fox News radio political analyst. Josh, I do want to ask you one more thing. We've got a break first. Stand by. We'll come right back on The Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson, Josh Krasauer, our guest here on the program. Lastly, Josh, very quickly, you sort of mentioned it already and touched on it, but it was our lead story yesterday. We did the first 40, 45 minutes of our show yesterday because it was unfolding before our eyes. We had to talk about it, and sort of – it feels like almost like a signpost or a marker in perhaps a shift in the vibe again or the the electoral wins back away from the Democrats where you have this – Really, I think, shockingly bad inflation report. Worse. People were expecting it to be painful, but maybe improving. That was the widespread expectation. That's not what we got in the report. Even Democratic economists saying, wow, this is a big red flag. And a few hours later, you have the Democrats with this pre planned celebration rally, literally on inflation at the White House. I mean, it was, <laughs> I mean, from a political perspective, pretty breathtaking. And it, I mean, fish in a barrel for Republicans.
3: Yeah, it makes you wonder why they scheduled that rally on the same day that we knew the inflation numbers were going to come out. I mean, they could have done it before. They could. Have, it, it just was very tone deaf politically, especially when we saw the bad numbers, the worrisome numbers coming out from 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 the consumer price index. You know, look, it feels like both parties are stepping on themselves, whether it's the Democrats on inflation and, and the student loan issue, I think, as well. And and Republicans on abortion, you know, this should have been a day where Republicans were squarely focused on on the economy. And yet Lindsey Graham introduces, uh, to my knowledge, on his own, without a whole lot of Republican input, this 15-week abortion ban, federal abortion ban regulation, Uh, you know, that that undermined the Republican message and the chance for Republicans to go on offense and put a lot of these candidates on the defensive as well. So it it doesn't – it seems like sometimes – the parties don 't want to actually w- win they don 't want to run to the middle and figure out where these persuadable voters are but i do guy i think inflation is still the dominant issue, and the the the, the worrisome data coming out. Uh, in the last few days is not good news for the White House. It's not good news for these swing state Democrats running in competitive races.
0: Yeah, and I would argue, and I will later on in the show, that I think the 15-week abortion restriction actually is the middle and is a much better area for Republicans to be arguing and sort of better terrain on the question of abortion. Your point about the timing, I think, is well taken. And we have to leave it there for now. I know you've got to run. We're just getting started here on the show today from Los Angeles with Josh Kraussauer, senior politics reporter at Axios. A Fox News radio political analyst. Josh, always appreciate it, really. Thanks, Guy. Great to be on. And we'll be right back on The Guy Benson Show. More after this.
2: You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson.
0: Back here on the Guy Benson Show, GuyBensonShow.com, our podcast free every day there, plus other content. You can check that out. Coming to you from L.A., thank you very much for listening. I want to focus on another state far from here where the governor actually here in California, Gavin Newsom, has spent a lot of his time attacking the state of Florida. I think it's because he would love to run for president. He sees Ron DeSantis as a foil. I don't think that that matchup would go terribly well for the Democrats if it were to materialize somehow in 2024. In fact, I saw a poll just within the last week asking Americans, would you rather live in Florida or California? And Florida won by like 20 points. It wasn't close. And DeSantis the other day took another pot shot back, a well-deserved one saying, you know, there are certain leaders really obsessed with my leadership in this state. At least the lights are on here, and we don't have rolling blackouts, which was a pretty good response given what's happened on this side of the country under the leadership of this one-party rule state, the Democratic Party in California. So down in Florida, you've got DeSantis running for re-election, and his opponent is Charlie Crist. Charlie Crist is this person who believes nothing. He's this vessel, this empty, soulless vessel who has been everything. He's been a conservative Republican. He's been a feisty, maverick independent. He's been a lockstep Democrat. And that's all just in the last, what, decade of his career. He will do and say whatever he needs to do and say in order to attain power. Because I guess that's the only purpose in his life is to be an elected official somewhere. And... I obviously have great disdain for this man. He opened his campaign by saying outright that he did not want the votes of any DeSantis supporters, which seems like a bad strategy, given how many DeSantis supporters there are in the state of Florida and people who approve of the governor. But Chris came out, after winning the nomination, put a teachers' union hack on his ticket, someone who wanted to keep the schools closed. I saw... Chris was also at least indulging the idea of vaccine passports in Florida. He wants to un-Florida, Florida. And he's making that very plain. And he said the day after he got the nomination, he does not want votes from DeSantis supporters because they have hate in their hearts and basically they're bigots. And he's describing more than half the state there, which is, as I've said, a bold strategy. Then he gave a speech just this week where in literally the same breath, he talks about being a uniter, and then compares Ron DeSantis to Satan. Listen to cut twenty-two. You
3: know, we got a divider on the other side and the uniter over here. You know, some people
4: call him the Satan. Have you heard that?
2: One of the nicer ones. Uh, indeed, it is. I'm trying to be nice. The
3: Satan versus that. Oh, think about it. Boom. There's no question about it. It is crystal
0: clear. He's bad. We're good. I mean, how ridiculous, how stupid, how juvenile. He's bad. We're good, says Charlie Crist. We've got a divider on one side and a uniter over here. That's me. I see. He's DeSantis so divisive. I don't divide, I unite. By the way, did you hear that they call him Satan? To Satan? Have you heard that? And a woman's like, that's one of the nicer ones. Chris, I'm trying to be nice. Oh, yeah. Definitely try to be nice there, Charlie. (laughs) It's like, hey, uh, my opponent is called. Many people are saying that he's Satan. I'm just trying to be nice and unite. I'm just such a uniter. I'm such a nice uniter, unlike my satanic opponent. He said it'll be Satan versus us. And he points at his own logo. So I guess he's what, in his own mind, the Jesus figure here in this epic battle between good and evil. Where the good guy is Charlie Crist. Who used to have all the same positions as Ron DeSantis not long ago. And now has someone on his ticket who actively wanted to do even more harm to the children of Florida. Wanted people to lose their jobs and livelihoods in the state of Florida that DeSantis saved. It is quite an interesting moral calculus from this absolute clown. I know the polling shows that DeSantis is ahead. Mostly, I've seen between four and eight points. A couple polls have it closer. A few have DeSantis up even more. If you're listening to my voice in Florida, and I know we have lots of listeners down there, uh, this is an easy call just in the opposite way of what Christ is saying. That was, by the way, a private event where that was captured on camera, the old Satan comment. Lovely. Now, something very weird happened this week. And a friend of mine, a listener to the show, sent this along to me. I would have missed it because I generally do not try to keep tabs on The View just for my own mental health. But something very weird happened. There was actually a useful, powerful, difficult confrontation for a Democrat. On The View, where Ana Navarro, and uh, I'm just not a fan of hers, not just because of her politics. I've interacted with her. I'll just leave it at that. But she asked a question of Charlie Crist when he was there on the show promoting his campaign against Ron DeSantis. And Navarro is from Florida, and she played for Charlie Crist. And this is pretty amazing, I have to say. Sound- Of Christ, I believe from 2006 or 2008, maybe as late as 2010, but it was in that range, 06 to 2010. This was back when Charlie Crist was a really conservative Republican, so he said, to the voters of Florida. He did a robocall, which is what they call this type of thing in politics, where the politician, the candidate, Records a message, and they blast it out to a bunch of people's voicemails, asking them to vote, reminding them to vote, making the little pitch for themselves. So here was the Charlie Crist robocall back in those days, not that long ago, in Crist's own voice, his own words. Here's how he was marketing himself to the people of Florida in Cut 20.
4: Hi, this is Charlie Crist calling to set the record straight. I'm pro-life. I oppose amnesty for illegal immigrants. I support traditional marriage and I have never supported a new tax or big spending program. I support a constitutional amendment to protect traditional marriage, and I oppose adoption by gay couples, and I work to ensure the right to display the Ten Commandments in public places. Floridians need a consistent conservative governor
2: that they can trust. I would appreciate your vote on Election Day. Thank you so much, and God bless you, and God bless Florida. Ah,
0: yes, what Floridians need is a consistent conservative governor that they can trust. Well, there's one person in the race now who has been consistently conservative, where you actually can trust that he is those things, and it sure as hell isn't Charlie Crist, who's now a liberal Democrat. So not conservative, not consistent, not trustworthy. Over oh, for 3. The actual trustworthy conservative who's been consistent, whether you like him or not, is Ron DeSantis. This guy hasn't twisted himself into pretzels to believe a thousand different things to a million different people. He's been a conservative from start to finish, and he's governed like one. Not just in the House of Representatives, but especially as the governor of Florida. But you just sort of listen to that clip. It's amazing. I want to set the record straight, because here's Mr. Credibility, right? I'm pro-life. I oppose amnesty. I support traditional marriage. I've never supported a new tax or a big spending program. I am in favor of the constitutional amendment to protect traditional marriage and stop gay people from adopting kids. Let's get those Ten Commandments out there in public. I'm super consistent. I'm so conservative. Trust me. <laughs> Looking back, it's pretty amazing, isn't it? Just go issue by issue. Pro-life, not anymore. He voted for... Unlimited abortion on demand through all nights of pregnancy as a member of the House of Representatives as a Democrat. He just did that, Charlie Crist, The opposite of pro life. Now pro abortion, not even pro choice. He's in favor of amnesty for illegal immigrants. He's voted for the path to citizenship and all these amnesty programs since he joined the Democratic Party. Traditional marriage, nope, now he's for gay marriage, I'm sure he's for gay adoption. Some people change on these things, but he changed on everything. I've never supported a new tax. Well, he's done that a lot as a Democrat. That's sort of part of the job description. Or a big spending program. Well, he has voted for all of it. He's a lockstep vote for Nancy Pelosi. Although he's been voting by proxy, hasn't even been showing up for work. This is amazing. I I feel like if you asked Charlie Crist to take a jackhammer to a monument of the Ten Commandments, if it would mean he would get elected, he would do it. Every single thing that he said, selling himself as a candidate to the people of Florida in the first iteration of his political career, he now, quote-unquote, believes exactly the opposite of all of it. That isn't someone who's just sort of thoughtfully evolved on a few issues. I think we've all done that. This is a cynical, power-hungry, dead-behind-the-eyes person who also is so self-unaware as to call himself a nice uniter while calling his opponent Satan. So anyway, on The View, they played that clip for him, which is pretty awkward because he's there as this avatar, as the opposite of all of these things. Here's his answer where he tries to explain it away in cut 21.
3: I changed parties because my party changed. You know, it started with the rise of the Tea Party back in 09 and 2010. Mm-hmm. And it really has metastasized since then. And, you know, I just couldn't stomach it anymore to see how, you know, not all Republicans. I don't want to paint too broad a brush here because there's a lot of good Republicans in Florida and in our country. And uh, what I understand, though, is that the party has changed dramatically from what it was uh, when I was a Republican. And and what I've seen is that it's so uh, anti-minority, frankly, this governor is, uh, making it harder for African-Americans to vote in my state.
0: Um, So that last part is a lie, a filthy, racist lie, which is what they've also tried in Georgia, and that's been completely blown up by reality. Oh, yeah, the governor's anti-minority and making harder for black people to vote. No, it is easy and efficient to vote in the state of Florida, which gets their stuff together and their results out very quickly and reliably. It's just such a cheap and nasty argument to make. And Charlie Chris, by the way, was for voter ID before he was against it, like everything else. By the way, black people overwhelmingly support voter ID laws. Republicans are gaining among minorities. Right, Democrats keep saying these people hate minorities, and yet more minorities are moving toward Republicans these days. And by the way, it's just such absolute BS there from Christ. Oh, I changed parties because my party changed. no. He changed parties because his party rejected him in favor of Marco Rubio. Rubio beat him in that Senate race, so then he changed parties to an independent as a sore loser to try to run as an independent. And all of a sudden, he believed some of the conservative stuff, but not all of it. And then that didn't work, so the independent thing didn't really stick. And his only option at that point to get power was to become a Democrat completely, so that's what he did has nothing to do with the Tea Party. has nothing to do with ideology or what the Republican Party believes. Indeed, just listen again if you want to. Go back, rewind the tape on the podcast or whatever. Listen to that robocall from Charlie Crist. Pro-life, against amnesty, traditional marriage, against new taxes, against big spending. Except for some movement on the same-sex marriage issue that we've talked about here. That's all the same. And believe me, if Charlie Chris had a path to power, going back or sticking with all of those things, he would do that. Because he doesn't believe a single thing. Meanwhile, on the other side of the aisle, you've got Ron DeSantis, who I saw, he's got this huge war chest of money in Florida. I mean, nine figures. And I wondered here on the air, would he start spending some of that money if he feels comfortable in his own race? And the polling is mixed, that it's like sort of close or not close at all. But if they feel confident, would they put some of those resources into other races? Because there are Republicans really around the country struggling to raise money for a number of different reasons. And what DeSantis has already done is influenced school board elections to great effect back on the day of the primary, flipping some school boards in the state with his endorsed candidates doing very well. Now he's transferred millions of dollars from his campaign to the state level, the Florida level Senate campaign arm to get more state senators reelected and elected on the Republican side. This is team player politics. He's not raising a bunch of money and sitting on it like certain other people, I will just say. He's trying to make sure that, yes, he gets reelected, but he also has as many allies in that state as possible for a second term. And we'll see if he might start doing something similar over this home stretch with some national candidates. And he's been out there raising money for them, stumping with them. He's on the road fighting for Republicans around the country and not just sort of in a parachute in a way and then leave. Politics is a team sport, and I think DeSantis is showing that. I'll leave you with this. DeSantis this week going after the Biden administration, the record of Joe Biden. Good stuff. Cut 26.
5: Well, I thought it was one of the most uh, disgusting speeches an American president has ever given. He uh, ran as being a unifier, and he's basically saying to the vast majority of the country that disapproves of him uh, that they're effectively a threat to the republic. He dodders, He lashes out. Uh, but at the end of the day, His policies are why there's so much opposition to him. He came in and he opened the border, and we've seen what a disaster that's been. He kneecapped American energy. We've seen how that's hurt millions and millions of people across our country. They've inflated the currency. We have one of the worst inflations we've had in over 40 years. So, of course, people are going to be upset at all the wreckage that he's left in his wake. He is the American Nero. He's a failed leader, and I think that he is doing this because he's trying to energize his base to fend off uh, a real butt whip in this November.
0: Well, DeSantis wants to be part of the butt whipping in Florida in November, but that case that he just built against Joe Biden sounds like he might have his eyes on a different prize into the future. That's just how it sounds to me. Just saying. The Guy Benson Show continues after this break.
2: The Guy Benson Show. More next.
0: Welcome back. It's the Guy Benson Show. We touched on this briefly with Josh Krausauer earlier in the hour. I know there's been some gnashing of teeth and anger on the right about Senator Lindsey Graham introducing a 15-week abortion restriction at the federal level, saying, oh, it's taking the attention off of inflation and other things. I get it on the timing. I also don't think strategically it's a terrible idea. In terms of a policy, it is a mainstream policy supported by a majority of the American people. A 15-week abortion ban, with certain exceptions, which are in the law, would be more permissive still than much of Europe, including France. It is not some radical, restrictionist, ban-type policy that they can, I think, successfully frame as extreme. Indeed, it's their position on the other side that's extreme. No restrictions for any reason. On demand, paid for by taxpayers, all the way through birth. That's crazy and deeply unpopular. The 15-week ban, which is what they've got in Florida and some other places, is right smack in the middle of the American mainstream. It is a better debate to be having on this question than some of the other cherry-picked arguments that we're having because that's what the Democrats want to talk about. This is some counter-programming that could help highlight their own radicalism. Now, the timing of it, how you bring states into it, different questions, but I just wanted to defend Graham strategically on the merits here. Next hour of the Guy Benson Show coming up, Carol Markowitz on deck. Stay with us.
2: Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show.
0: A brand new hour here on the Guy Benson Show coming to you from Los Angeles, California today. Thank you very much for tuning in every weekday between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern time. If you can't catch us live as we air, there's a podcast for that. It is free. It is on demand every day when the show is over. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on social media at Guy Benson Show. That's on Twitter and on Instagram. Let's get to our next guest. It's Carol Markowitz, columnist at the New York Post and foxnews.com. Carol, always great to talk to you.
1: Hi, Guy. Thanks so much for having me.
0: I want to start with what happened during our show here yesterday at the White House and just sort of a breathtaking spectacle with Mm -hmm. the administration gathering a whole bunch of people, weeks of planning to celebrate the so-called Inflation Reduction Act literally hours after the new inflation report had come out and was dreadful. And you just kind of wonder, was there any conversation inside the White House saying, maybe do we pull the plug on this thing? Should we have scheduled this perhaps yesterday instead of today? The result was a split screen for the ages, it feels like.
1: Right. And you know, the thing is that they didn't need the report to know that inflation was still going so poorly. Um, It's everywhere. You feel it everywhere. You see it everywhere. The prices are so high. You can listen to Cardi B talk about it. It's literally all over the place where everybody knows that the prices are astronomical and they're not coming down and nothing is improving. But what I think that the Biden administration counts on and to some degree gets is media cover. They get this cover from the press that they won't be mocked about it. It won't be the the subject of late night, you know, comedy shows. It, it, it will, you know, just be part of their uh, messaging. And I don't know, you know, what we can do to improve on that, because that's just something that they that they do actually get from the press.
0: Yeah, I'd say generally that's true. I think yesterday was so flagrantly bad that even, for example, CNN, that clip was going around online of them cutting away and remarking on the disconnect between what had been announced a few hours prior and what they were trying to sort of, you know, hoot and holler for on the South Lawn. And I think sometimes it takes real effort to get the mainstream media to cover a Democratic administration that badly, especially so close to an election. But I think they pulled it off yesterday. I mean, that was a real stroke of anti-genius by the brain trust over there.
1: You know, but I am seeing already reporters on Twitter saying things like, well, yeah, of course inflation is not better yet. This isn't the the act that's going to reduce inflation. This is just an announcement of something that's going to help. It obviously can't help yet. (laughs) So I mean, they they Uh are still, you know, (laughs) just making it so that the Biden administration doesn't look super foolish because, you know, that is how they looked.
0: (laughs) I mean, to me, they can spin and the reporters can maybe try to soften it a little bit. A month ago, they passed with no Republican votes, something that they're calling the Inflation Reduction Act. That was a month ago. And they claimed that it would reduce inflation and help immediately. And then the very next inflation report was terrible. And they held a celebration event on literally that day. I mean, it's just – it's pretty remarkable. And leading up to that, the spin had to start relatively early. We played some sound from Corinne Jean-Pierre at the podium. She was gaslighting saying, well, really, if you think about it, prices are flat. And a lot of this stuff on reduction of inflation is historic. She's been churning out a fair amount of high octane gaslighting recently. On the border yesterday, she said that the Biden administration has done a better job than the Trump administration securing the border. Because she said Trump only tried to build a wall and couldn't get it done. Whose fault was that? Democrats. She then went on to attack Republican obstructionism, which made absolutely no sense. But she's actually trying to say that the Democrats are better on border security than Republicans, even though we remember how the Trump administration put together a suite of successful policies, got their arms around the problem in a major way, and all of that got brushed to the side and, and binned by the Biden administration for political reasons, and the result is a crisis of historic proportion shattering records. So if you want to, you can comment on that gaslighting from – Inflation to the border, but there's also education, which I know we want to talk about here, unless you want to jump in on the border.
1: Yeah. Well, so what I wanted to say about the border is a lot of issues in America are 50-50 issues, but the border and securing the border is just not one of them. You know, whether you want a secure border becomes an 80-20-90-10 issue. There's very few people, even like Bernie Sanders will say, you know, we must stop illegal immigration. Otherwise, if we have an open border, you know, we're we're just going to be overrun. And that's, you know, a quote from Bernie. That's not me saying that. So it's it's not something that they can um, massage and and just hope it goes away. This is a real thing to a lot of people, and the whole busing migrants to other to, to liberal cities is p- making that issue even more um, you know unbalanced than it was before. Nobody wants this to continue. nobody
0: and if you're right that it's an eighty twenty issue, and I think generally you are right, especially when you get down to the core question. What's so striking is the Democratic Party and the leadership of the Democratic Party, including in a supposedly moderate, less progressive administration led by a guy like Joe Biden, they're on the side of the 20. It seems like they are constantly walking on eggshells to not tick off the hardcore elements of the activist base that are at the fringe of that 20 percent, and yet they are the folks that they're allowing to call the shots on this. And, I mean, it seems like a very big opening for Republicans to really go after them. And I know there's a lot of issues swirling out there, but uh, sometimes I think it's up to Republicans to get focused and aggressive on this stuff because the vulnerabilities are there.
1: Absolutely. You're absolutely right. Re- Republicans this should be an easy thing that they run on um, and absolutely should have some kind of action points on what they will do differently than Democrats on this.
5: Yeah,
0: and when the response is from the White House, well, actually, we're better on securing the border than Trump, nobody believes that, right? They don't believe it. When Kamala Harris goes on NBC and says the border secure, which she did on Sunday, you can see in her eyes, you can hear it in her voice. She doesn't believe it. Jean-Pierre flips to a page in her binder and just reads this ludicrous sentence, and it goes out there into the world. Nobody believes it, and I think that's the tell when their responses are so weak It means that they really do have nothing. They have nothing better to offer. So Mm -hmm. press the advantage. Prosecute the case. And I think that brings us perfectly as a segue to education. You wrote a column at the Washington Examiner about yet more rewriting of history and revisionism from the Biden administration, actually from the lips of Corinne Jean-Pierre as well. It was last week when she was trying to pretend yet again That the real problem in closed schools during the pandemic lies with Republicans and Trump and the mismanagement of the pandemic. And again, Carol, I think the comfort that I get from this is nobody believes them. We all remember what happened. It doesn't pass the basic laugh test of recent memory. And if this is what they're stuck trying to argue, they really don't have a better plan than this. You dismantled this talking point in your column. Walk us through some of the key points.
1: So the main things that people uh, on the left sort of go after right now is they'll say, well, you know, it was everybody closed schools. Everybody did that. Yeah, everybody did that in March 2020. But then who opened schools in September 2020? And that was the red areas around the country. But really what we want to focus on here is that we're not even talking about 2020. We're talking at this point about January, February 2021. Joe Biden takes the office um, and says he's going to open schools in the first 100 days, 100 days, 100 days puts them in May. A lot of us said well, that doesn't really make any sense because May is when school generally ends. But OK, OK, let's see what happens here with the 100 days. By February, they have been convinced by the teachers unions that this is not happening. So at the time, Jen Psaki uh, give, comes out and gives a, a press conference and is asked about the 100 days. And she says that what they actually meant was to have all the schools open at least one day per week in person yes, within a Yes, I remember days.
0: that. Which they'd the already week- had, right? It had already been yeah, achieved.
1: Yeah, so, right. So even the left leaning, like PolitiFact, had to say wait, that already exists. And that already existed in the left areas, in the in the in the deep blue areas. In the red areas, school was going on as if it was you know 2019. At, at that time, my family moved to Florida for a few months, kind of just as a test run. And my kids were going to school every single day, while their kids while their friends in New York were going two to three days a week for my sons and zero days per week for my daughter. So. This was already happening. Um, and so the fact that they're trying to rewrite this as if Republicans were just as bad as Democrats or Republicans were somehow standing in their ways, completely oh, nonsense. Like they were
0: nonsense. worse, right? Yeah, they're yeah. Like they were worse, except, again, we all remember that Trump was saying, get the schools open in the summer of 2020. And then Ron DeSantis got the schools open in the fall of 2020. We had tons of data. Even though everyone was describing it or a lot of critics were describing it as this dangerous human sacrifice and this big experiment that's going to kill children, that was certainly the argument of the teachers' unions, including, by the way, Charlie Crist's running mate down there in Florida who hired a hearse to make it seem like Ron DeSantis was murdering kids. But based on all the data we already had from Europe in particular, we knew this was going to be a safe situation. It was. It was safe in Florida. It was safe in private schools across the country. It was safe in other places that opened their schools. But every step of the way, the Democrats and the teachers unions just sort of looked away from the science, pretending like that data, and it wasn't just like a little study here or there. It was a massive international data set involving millions of children. They just pretended like that didn't exist. And... In this negative partisanship era, Carol, we all remember Trump says do something. DeSantis does something based on the data. And the resistance crowd said, well, we have to do the opposite. And that's precisely what they did. The unions were rewriting the science for the CDC. We learned that through uh, FOIA requests and, and emails that had been uncovered. And the quick easy heuristic that you just referenced is you just look, where were the schools open longest and where were they closed the longest? And it is exactly the opposite of what the white house is trying to tell us now. And again, I just, I'm glad that we're covering this on the show. We spent a lot of time doing monologues, attacking it and setting the record straight. You've written your column. I think that's all important just to constantly fact check these people. But at least my hope is, and my feeling is in their guts americans and parents know that this is bs that they're being fed and it's not going to work
1: yeah so the only thing i would add to that is that it was teachers unions who who affected the science that they were the ones who actually rewrote policy that when the cdc wanted to move it from six feet to three feet in the classroom to get more kids into the classroom the the teachers unions literally made them change that so that's you know, one thing that I absolutely want people to remember, the other thing that I, I I hammer again and again and again, and I really want people to remember, yeah, Ron DeSantis opened schools in September 2020, but when, he, when the following year, school year 2021, he was getting so much pressure not to open schools then. In summer of 2021, Randy Weingarten was saying, we're going to try to open schools in September. And then when, when Florida schools started opening in August, all the headlines were like, Teachers die as schools open in Florida, mm-hmm. and it was it was just this was not about twenty twenty anymore. This is the school year that ended you know and by the way the June. teachers
0: the teachers who died that they were talking about, and of course it 's very sad when anyone died from covid but the teachers who died in that case they weren 't even individuals who contracted the disease in the schools they had gotten it elsewhere over the summer, but people were trying to conflate that with a danger of opening schools, and that was the cudgel that they were trying to use to pressure DeSantis. To close the schools again, of course, he didn't do it to his lasting credit, but the people, and I think the person who sort of exemplifies all of the bullying, all of the anti-science nonsense, all of the hatred and contempt for data, the anti-child policies, and, I mean, you look at the results in math and reading tests that we talked about last week in that study, I mean, it is horrifying, it's so, so damaging The person at the top of all of that who is sort of the figurehead is Randy Weingarten, who was once again yesterday an honored guest at the White House. She was an honored guest at a White House event, what, a week or two ago about reopening schools. She remains part of the Democratic coalition in very good standing. They love her over there at the White House. And to me, that feels like a motivating factor. It should be in these elections it's the first national election since all of this happened and it's not old news the harm done to children is ongoing
1: i agree i think that this needs to be at the top of the list of things that people consider when they're voting that these people took away school from the most underprivileged kids in the country and for a lot of them they, you know they got their kids tutors they got their kids private schools um, and they didn't care at all what happened to the other kids. And, and so I think people like Randy Weingarten being in the mix of the White House is absolutely damning. But also the White House itself is responsible for what happened from the time they took office to the end yep. of that school year. It was them who kept schools closed it was them who asked the randy weingarten to sit down with cdc and rewrite health policy all of these people need to be fired the cdc is just i think completely politicized at this point and and people should really consider all of this when they're voting
0: carol markowitz one more topic to tackle with you let's do it after this very quick break on the guy benson show
2: fresh conservative talk guy benson show
0: I'm Guy Benson. We're back. Carol Markowitz, one last question, unrelated, although it does have to deal with children and raising kids and the formation of their young brains. You wrote another column that I thought was very interesting. I'm not a parent yet. If I become one, this is something I have already been thinking about because when I was growing up, social media wasn't a thing. And smartphones weren't a thing. In fact, Facebook arrived on my campus my freshman year. And I didn't get a smartphone until I was an adult. I think if I had had those things available to me at a much earlier age, it might have really screwed me up in a number of ways. And I'm grateful that that wasn't the case technologically at the time. You're making the case now as a mother that kids are in front of various screens, whether it's TVs or tablets or phones, far too much. And you argue that we're turning them, quote, into boring beasts. Just give us a quick synopsis of why you wrote this column and what you're trying to do with your kids and your family on this front?
1: So, first of all, you have to have kids. The world needs little Guy Benson's absolutely must. So, <laughs> you, don't make it a maybe. You have to do it. Um, it look, we always were concerned about screens and kids. Ever since screens became a thing, you know, when we were younger, uh, they were talked about watching too much TV. We know that it dulls the brain. We know that what it takes away from people. But what I've seen since the pandemic is just a. Spike in the usage in a way that I just I I can't bear to see. I see it on the playgrounds, I see it on the beaches, I see it in restaurants all the time. It's no longer just vegging out on Saturday morning, you know, watching Saturday cartoons. It's literally everywhere and all the time. And these kids are really losing out. I admit that my kids sometimes overuse screens also, but we we really do try to make an effort not to have them use it. Outside the home, for example, or take it with them everywhere they go. I think it really is going to be damaging to this generation of children unless we act right now. And I think it's hard, but parents need to be the parent, and they need to say no, and they need to take it away, and they need to get their kids just off of these screens.
0: Carol Markowitz, a columnist at the New York Post and FoxNews.com and elsewhere. I always enjoy reading her stuff, and we always enjoy having her here. On The Guy Benson Show, Carol, always appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you. We'll talk again soon. And the Guy Benson Show resumes with Andy McCarthy right after this break. Stay with us.
2: Talking about the issues you care about, Guy Benson.
0: Halfway through the show, halfway through the week. From Los Angeles, it is the Guy Benson Show. Thanks for being here. GuyBensonShow.com, podcast free every day. Coming up about half an hour from now, in our next hour, Herschel Walker will be joining us from Georgia. Big Senate race out there. Looking forward to that conversation. I think it has national importance and I think special importance to our listeners on Extra in Atlanta. With us now is Andrew McCarthy, Fox News contributor, former federal prosecutor, author of multiple best selling books at Andrew C. McCarthy on Twitter. Andy, great to have you here, as always. Guy, great to be with you. I would like to bounce around through a few different investigations that are playing out right now, and they're kind of a bit of a jumble, and it's hard to keep them straight, even in my mind, as someone who watches the news pretty closely. Let's start with the Mar-a-Lago raid and this special master and the battle in court over that. What's
4: the latest? What do you make of it? The... The big thing there, Guy, is the Justice Department did kind of a modified uh, or limited motion for reconsideration. The judge, uh, Judge Aileen Cannon, ordered a special master to go through all the approximately 13,000 documents and items seized from Mar-a-Lago. The Justice Department objects to that, but they're also concerned about how long an appeal would take. So I think they would be willing to live with the special master If the judge would carve out of the special master's review 100 documents that are marked classified, it's approximately 100. What they argue is that those are not conceivably covered by executive privilege and that the judge has already ruled that the Justice Department and the intelligence community can use those documents to conduct a damage assessment. They say their criminal investigation is inextricably linked to that assessment, so they need the documents anyway. And if the judge agrees today, they've basically given her until Thursday. They say they'll appeal, which would be tomorrow, if if she doesn't accommodate them. Uh, But if she does, I think they'll swallow hard and go along with the special uh, master, even though they don't like it, uh, because otherwise an appeal to the 11th circuit could slow them up for weeks, if not months.
0: Where do you think this thing is headed overall based on what you're seeing?
4: Um, I think that there is a a strong chance that uh, former President Trump could get charged um, with obstruction. And if he does, he could be charged with – I think the big issue is do you charge him or not because of all the obvious reasons not to charge him. If they pull the trigger and charge him, I think they might charge him with a number of things. Uh, But obstruction, I think, is what's driving the uh, driving the train. If they think they can make that case and they're concerned, they say that there are still documents missing. That's a big part of it.
0: Meanwhile, there's also an investigation into January 6th and the Capitol riot. And I saw a leaked report to the media that that probe is also ramping up and getting more intense. Isn't there, and and correct me if I'm wrong, but we've heard this in connection with the Hunter Biden saga, for example, if there are very politically sensitive investigations that involve high-profile politicians or political figures, there's sometimes like this period where they go dark around elections so they don't seem like they're trying to influence elections. I feel like we're within a two-month window here, but we're also hearing you know, through whispers to the press that the January 6th, criminal investigation is ratcheting
4: up how do you read that andy well the the uh, unwritten 60 day rule that the justice department uh, goes by and, and i i've never been a fan of this uh, guidance and Part of the reason that makes me not a fan of it is why it's not a written rule. You know, sometimes, Guy, not acting is just as consequential as acting, right? Mm-hmm. Like if you have a – if you have very strong evidence, like slam-dunk evidence, say that a someone who's running for office is taking bribes, uh, I don't think it would be fair to the public to not bring that case if you would bring it under those other circumstances and withhold that information from the electorate either. So, I, you know, I've always thought as a prosecutor you do the best you can, and when a case is ready to go – Uh, you try to tune out the uh, political calendar because you can't game it correctly no matter what and it's just like it's beyond your ability to to control it that said uh, i don't think any of the investigations we're talking about is headed for public charges prior to election day so there probably won't be any charges at least uh that doesn't mean that there won't be any activity but most of it will be behind the scenes now the government can try to do things beyond behind the scenes and they become public. Like we got a report yesterday that Mike Lindell, the my pillow guy um, had a uh, search warrant for his telephone uh, executed yesterday that became public because he made it public. So, you know, sometimes these things become public beyond the government's control, but I think there'll be a lot of activity behind the scenes. Although the January 6th committee in the house, which is not obviously under Justice Department restrictions of any kind, will be very public, I think, come the end of the month.
0: Yeah, I think that's also part of the timing by design uh, from that committee. Now, meanwhile, Andy, it's another investigation, but it's sort of on the other side of the ledger to a certain extent. We got some word yesterday that there's another revelation in the Durham investigation who is looking into this is John Durham looking into the origins of the Russia probe into Trump, which, of course, created years' worth of drama based on what turned out to be the phony and baseless premise that Trump and his campaign were colluding with the Russians to influence the 2016 presidential election. How did that whole smear, which was a huge one, and a consequential one, and a costly one, and all that. How did that get rolling in the first place? That's what Durham's been looking into. It's been a a slow process, I think it's fair to say. Maybe deliberative is the nicer way to put it. But there was something that popped up just yesterday on that front involving, sounds like, yet another paid FBI informant who was laundering or peddling what looks like Russian disinformation in a way to hurt Donald Trump. What can you tell us about that?
4: Yes, so Igor Denchenko, who is uh, has been identified as the principal source for the Steele dossier, that's this uh, uh, innuendo rife set of uh, faux intelligence reports that were completed on behalf of the Clinton campaign by the former right. uh, British spy Christopher Steele. This is the guy who was his main source of information, who was a, not only a notorious liar – uh, but evidently um, was under investigation by the fbi uh, i think during the obama years um, for being for on suspicion that he was a uh, a Russian spy, a Russian asset, while he was working at the Brookings Institution. So now we learn, Guy, unbelievably... And by the way, just you. just
0: to jump in, just to remind people, the Steele dossier was not a minor or tangential document in the whole Trump-Russia thing. It was, I think, safe to say, the central source that from which a lot of the investigation sprang and emanated, and without... The Steele dossier, some of these FISA warrants, and, and all of that would never have materialized. Is it fair to say that was a central pillar of that whole adventure?
4: That is correct, Guy. The uh, the Justice Department and the FBI vehemently deny that it was the trigger for the investigation. Uh, I I'm, I'm skeptical of that, although they they rely on the uh, uh, Inspector General report for that. Uh, what they say is the trigger was frivolous, but you know that's a whole different story about the Australian uh, diplomat who was involved in all of this. But it is absolutely the truth that they wouldn't have been able to get the FISA warrant without the allegations in the dossier. And they, in the FISA warrant, people can read this, uh, flat out told the court that they suspected that the Trump campaign was basically a Russian setup, that it was a you know a mole for Russia in the United States. So they and they that was not one warrant. they went back to the FISA court four times an original time and then three subsequent ones. This is the guy, the guy we 're talking about now, guy, Igor Danchenko, who was the main source for feel for that mm-hmm. uh, he's He's now accused uh, in the uh, case that uh, is going to trial, I believe later this month. This is the other case that Durham has indicted he's looking at five false statements counts in that case. But what we unbelievably learned yesterday based on a filing from Durham is that the FBI actually signed this guy up as a paid informant uh, in 2017, (laughs) uh, and he continued to be one for three years, uh, during which time it seems like it was pretty obvious that they knew both that he was misleading them and that the information they had gotten from him indicated that the Steele dossier that they went to back back to court on again and again was full of misstatements that they didn't correct with the FISA were
0: Were they paying Steele, too, at some point, Christopher Steele, on the payroll yes. of the FBI? Yes, we we're all, were we paying for both of them. That's right. I mean, it's just like um, – it's just and, and then the dossier was paid for by the DNC and the Hillary Clinton campaign. I mean it's just so incestuous. It seems – honestly, Eddie, it, it looks at least from the outside like hopeless politicized –
4: Corruption. That's what it looks like. Yeah, it sure does. And the other thing I think it's incumbent on Congress to find out, Guy, is why was this guy put on the payroll and kept there uh, throughout the Mueller investigation? And did that enable them, and I don't know if this is true or not, it has to be investigated, to keep Danchenko from the what was then the ongoing invest- Inspector General investigation into FBI misconduct by Michael Horowitz? Did he know that Danchenko was an FBI informant, or did they sign him up as an informant because they could then say, well, that's intelligence methods and sources, and we can't yeah, – uh, Classified, so or we can't, can't, we can't get into that. Yeah. Right. Well, I'll, I'll tell you
0: one thing, Andy. There is zero chance, none – that Congress will look into any of that so long as Democrats control Congress. Correct. And so yep. that, that's another motivating factor on the accountability front. If you're a Republican or maybe center-right-leaning voter, you need at least a Republican House uh, for the subpoenas to start to fly and to have some people show up and, and testify. Uh, there are answers that need to be given to the American people and furnished on this front. Andy, I want to turn to another topic, a very important one. When we come back, stay tuned.
2: Fresh conservative talk, Guy Benson Show.
0: Back on the Guy Benson Show with Andy McCarthy. Andy, I want to shift gears here to something else that I saw this week. As we are just past the 21st anniversary of September 11th, Catherine Herridge, our former colleague at Fox News, now at CBS, she had given an update about the Justice Department and ongoing plea deal negotiations with a number of 9-11 conspirators, including the mastermind Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, and Herod said, based on her sources, the plea deals being discussed could potentially leave the death penalty off the table for these guys who planned and plotted the murder of 3,000 nearly innocent people in this country. And I have to tell you, Andy, I'm just astonished. That there's even an ongoing process here. In my opinion, I'm generally against the death penalty for a number of reasons, not in principle, but in practice. For someone who is an avowed enemy of the United States, who kills thousands of our people, it's not a close call. In my mind, Khaled Sheikh Mohammed should have been interrogated harshly, which he was, sapped of all the potential intelligence that he had. That would take, I don't know, months, maybe a couple of years at the absolute most, and then executed. Here we are 21 years and counting later. He is still drawing breath along with four of his jihadist buddies. And it looks like the Biden administration is looking for a way to make sure that they never get put to death for what they did 21 years ago. I feel like there's like multiple levels of scandal here, and I I don't even know what to
4: say about it. Well, I think, Guy, what you're confronting – is something similar to what Winston Churchill confronted in the Second World War, which is given what we know about what the Nazis did, um, shouldn't they just be lined up against a wall and shot uh, as opposed to do we have to give them a trial? And, you know, the issue here is do we have to give these guys a trial? Everything you just said is absolutely true. On the other hand, um, you know, they are being held pursuant to a military commission case, which they were arraigned on in 2012 after a 10 year delay or close to a 10 year delay and still haven't been tried on. There's no prospect in the, uh, I would say in the next year to two, uh, that they would be tried, that we would get through this trial. There are immense legal questions about what the military commission can do, but the biggest complication in the case. Is the evidence of forcible interrogation tactics? I mean, you're, you're, you. I, I'm with you in terms of like a ticking bomb scenario. I think we have to do what we have to do to get the information. But you know, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed was waterboarded 180 times. Uh, they did other things that were blood curdling when you read some of the interrogation tactics. And then what happened a couple of years later, guy, is they brought an FBI clean team in to try to get statements from them um, that were not you know traceable to the torture if if it was torture um and then you have so you have the legal issue about whether those statements should be admissible they've had conflicting rulings on that over the last several years a lot of the evidence of physical abuse is going to come before the military commission at the sentencing phase because in a military commission case the sentence is imposed by the panel not by the judge uh so all that all that is going to come out so the question is are there legal Uh, flaws that are going to prevent the military commission from holding up just as a legal matter. And secondly, if a panel hears this torture evidence, uh, which is the way it will be cast for them, would they impose the death penalty? And would they even convict? I think they'll probably convict, but whether they'll impose the death penalty, the argument's going to be that we have, uh, you know, forfeited the right to get a judicially imposed, even military justice, imposed death penalty by the way these people were Handled. I don't know how attractive that argument will be uh, to a military panel. It might be very attractive because it's anathema to the way the military uh, conducts itself. So I think this is this is very complicated. And the question is, is it better under the circumstances uh, to take a plea uh, that would have them uh, imprisoned for life uh, rather than, you know, what we're looking at now, which is another year or two at least of proceedings that have a very Unknown outcome at this yeah. point. Yeah, I and mean, I I look, very I very hear point. you. It
0: makes sense. I mean, everything that you said makes sense. It just what doesn't make sense is that you can be a terrorist who successfully plans and then helps execute the murder of 3,000 Americans, and decades later you're still alive and the death penalty might be off the table for you. I mean, even if you were roughed up and there was enhanced interrogation, I mean, just after 9-11, knowing that this guy knew even more, uh, it's just very tough to swallow, I think, for a lot of Americans, especially since we're so close to the anniversary of that horrible day. Andy, very briefly, last question, the death of Kenneth Starr. Judge Starr, of course, famous from the Clinton years and the Clinton investigations and all of that. Uh, He had, I think, an inkblot on the copybook, When he was at Baylor and some of the stuff that got covered up there, I see a lot of people attacking him uh, now that he has passed away at the age of 76. He has been a guest on this program multiple times, and I know that you certainly know him better than I do. Just your reflections on Kenneth Starr's life.
4: Just a wonderful man, a brilliant lawyer, uh, and someone, I think, guy who I feel privileged to have uh, befriended over the last number of years, but who was an amazing example of someone who, through faith, uh, brilliance, good wit, and good cheer, managed not to become um, someone who was uh, resentful and bitter uh, at the vicious attacks that he underwent over the years. He was, he was always unfailingly, uh, in, in my experience of him, uh, upbeat uh, and always an asset in any equation that he was in, And it would have been very easy for him, the way that he was subjected to character assassination, to have become a bitter old guy, and he just never did.
0: Kenneth Starr, dead yesterday at the age of 76. Andy McCarthy, our guest on The Guy Benson Show. Andy, we always enjoy chatting with you. Thanks for giving us some time today.
4: Thank you so much, Guy.
0: Final hour of The Guy Benson Show coming up. Herschel Walker is here next.
2: It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It is the
0: happy hour here on the Guy Benson Show. Live from Los Angeles, I'm Guy Benson. Thank you for listening. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. The podcast is free every single day on demand. You can follow us on social media at Guy Benson Show on both Twitter and Instagram. I'll be on TV tonight, Fox News at night. It's Rich Edson sitting in in the big chair. I'll be on there at some point in the midnight hour Eastern time. You can tune in or set your DVRs. That's again later on this evening. And this hour is sponsored by the Finnish long drink, which is delicious, refreshing, and growing in popularity all across the country. Check it out. TheLongDrink.com is their website. Find out where it's sold near you. You can also order online. Always drink responsibly, 21 plus only, TheLongDrink.com. As we begin our final hour here on this Wednesday, I am thrilled to welcome, for the first time to the Guy Benson Show, our next guest, Georgia Bulldogs legend, pro football star, Heisman Trophy winner, businessman, and now Republican nominee for the U.S. Senate in Georgia, Herschel Walker. Herschel, it's great to have you. Welcome.
6: Hello there, guy. How are you doing? Thank you for having me on.
0: Uh, I'm I'm delighted to have you, and I have to tell you this before we get into politics. My best friend in the world, Mary Catherine Hamm, is a Georgia Bulldog. She bleeds red and black. She's dragged me down to Athens a few times, and it's an incredible experience. We went to the Rose Bowl together the year that they beat Oklahoma. So I'm not a Georgia guy. I'm a Big Ten guy. But as far as the SEC is concerned, I pull for Georgia, and she would kill me if I didn't start the interview by just saying, Go dogs!" She loves you. And so I wanted to pass along that message before I got into trouble.
6: Well, thank you. The Dawes are playing well, and I know she's got to be happy. I'm happy. I think everyone in Georgia are happy about that, and they're going to continue to play well. Uh, I think Coach Smart has done a very, very good job, and the players really uh, seem to really, really like him, and they respond to the way he coaches.
0: You know, I actually meant to ask you about Kirby Smart here. Since we're on the topic of football, obviously they finally – did it last year, and got over the hump, beat Alabama, won the whole thing. And then they come out of the gate this season. They're not ranked number one in the country, right? That's Alabama again. they got Ohio State ahead of them. Then they come out and make the statement that they made in Atlanta against a top-ranked team, number 11, Oregon. It wasn't just a solid win. It was just an absolute beatdown. I wonder if there's maybe a chip on their shoulder, still not quite getting the respect that I think they should have earned with a national title.
6: Well, I think uh, Coach coaches smart. has got them just ready to play. I think when you go into uh, camp during the summer, uh, you know, you get you guys ready, and yeah, a lot of guys come and bite the same as Alabama did, but I think he just gave those guys a chance to be a little bit sharper than a lot of people. And but Alabama still have a great team. Uh, Ohio State still have a good team. And and I always want to be the guy that's not ranked number one right now because uh-huh. it's tough to say number one. But I think Georgia got a very good, very very good chance of staying at number one and really fighting it off. And but it's going to be tough because in the SEC they come at the you every week.
0: Yeah, there's no doubt about that. You've got a you know, target on your back if you're number one. You're all the, already the defending champs. I guess last question about college football before we move on. I'm curious because I didn't start really following college football until I went to college. Uh, back in 2003, I was a freshman. I went to Northwestern in Chicago, Big Ten Conference, and I just fell in love with the game. And I still have my season tickets. Even though I don't live in Chicago, I go to as many games as I can. And even in the course, uh, and the reason for that preamble is, even in the course of my years as a fan, which is almost now 20 years, which kind of blows my mind, I've seen the game change pretty dramatically, especially in recent years. And I just wonder what you make of some of the changes in college football and what some of the biggest differences are for when, from when you, know, when you were an icon and a star at UGA. What do you think are some of the changes that are good about college football, and what are some of the changes that you might not like as much about the game?
6: Well, I think one of the biggest changes you see right now is the guys have gotten bigger, they've gotten faster, uh, and they're really throwing the ball around a lot more than when I played because, you know, you got a lot of good athletes out there. And, you know, uh, I was telling people about Georgia last year, and they got the same, sort of like the same team this year. They are very, big team that is very fast and you know, that make a big difference I and mean, those guys are moving to the ball the way they move and then the speed that they have It become a very physical game uh you know i think when you start talking about what i don't like about the game you know right now i think it's very very for me, very hard for me to accept that they're going to pay players to play in college football i think it's going to separate a lot of players and, you know, you, I think the guys got to go out and get accountants and all things like that. So I think that may change the game a little bit that I may not like as much. But, you know, um, if, 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 but I think the players are going to do well. I'm still out praying for the game to be a good game. And Saturday, I think everybody uh, on Saturday saw a lot of good teams to play. And, and I'm excited to see college football start back up.
0: Well, from one play field to another, you're running for Senate. First-time candidate for public office, which is sort of, you know, a a plus and a minus in a lot of voters' minds. You are famous and loved in the state for football-related reasons. You have this big reservoir of goodwill. I think a lot of people are tired of career politicians in a lot of ways. You're an outsider. You're different. On the other hand, there is a pretty steep learning curve, it would seem, to going from, you know, never running for office. And now you're seeking a U.S. Senate seat, which is a very big deal, against an opponent who I think is wrong on on almost everything. But he's a good talker. He's smooth. He was a pastor. I'm just wondering how that learning curve is going for you. And you've got the October 14th debate that people are talking about already. What are you doing as a first-time candidate to prepare for that debate and I think the stakes are pretty high for October fourteenth.
6: Well first of all I'm listening to the people a great deal. I'm listening to the voters. Uh you know when I decided to run, the first thing I decided to do is uh I was gonna try to get around to all hundred and fifty nine counties and listen to what the people had to say. And I've been listening to the people and, and uh you know uh Senator Warnock just decided yesterday that he, he would debate me, which I think is a great thing because it gives the voters an opportunity to see the contrast between the two of us. You know, right now, he believes in an open border. I don't believe in an open border. He have called all men and women in blue thugs and, and uh, bullies. And, and, you know, and I think our men and women in blue have done an incredible, incredible job. And they've made it very, very tough on them right now when they put out defund the police. We have some men and women in blue that's out risking their life every day to keep this, this country safe. And then, you know, he said that you can't serve the military and serve God at the same time. And yet our military, when you start talking about our military, that's the reason we're the strongest and greatest country in the world. We've got the best military in the world. And from the great speech, uh, that peace to strength, well, our military is all strength. And right now, this administration seems to be making us weak by some of the decisions that they've made. And, and Senator Warnock is right along with Joe Biden. He's voted with him 96% of the time, which I think is headed in the wrong direction. And the people saying that's like same thing, that they're headed in the wrong direction.
0: Yeah, on Senator Warnock, you know, he sort of presents himself as this charming, likable, kind of moderate guy, don't believe the lies that they're going to tell about me and so on and so forth. And He was able to thread the needle and and get elected just last year. Uh, In that time, since he's been in the United States Senate and he's voted the way that you just described with his party, with this president, almost 100 percent of the time, do you think the people of Georgia are now sort of catching up with the game here? Because he seems, at least from my perspective where I sit, to be significantly to the left of where most Georgians are – but that's not how he presents himself. How are you going to try to push back against this image that he's created?
6: Well, you know, one of the things is, uh, you know, the media is never going to be my friend right now. You know, years ago, the media used to love Herschel Walker. <laughs> and I would talk about myself in third person, but they used to love Herschel Walker. And today, because I decided to run on a Republican ticket, now they don't like me that much, so they're never going to be my friend. So I have to get out and uh, do what you call old fashioned campaigning. I'm going around to all the different counters, meeting with the people, letting the people know what I can do, but also letting them what, what one is doing as well. You know, he pretends to be helping you out, and yet he's caused this problem. You know, and I've said that he is a wolf in sheep's clothing because he pretends that he's this great guy and he's this pastor, and he used that to think that he's uh, Dr. King. And I said, you know, Dr. King thought it's not the color of your skin, but the content of your character. But it seems the only thing he decided to try to decide on is the color of someone's skin. Well, I disagree with that. Right now, we're good people here in this country, and we got a lot of good people. We got some problems, but we can solve those problems together. But it seems like this administration and Senator Warnock believe that we're very racist and we're a terrible country. But I want people to know that we're good people, that we have a lot of great people here, and we're not a racist country. We have our problems. We can solve those problems together. And as the great saying, go together, we stand divided, we fall. And I want Reverend Warnock to know that, Senator Warnock to know that, that, you know, we got to go out and continue to fight together because things are already hard enough. They've called this an economy problem that they've called. They made things very difficult on Georgia.
0: When you're out on the campaign trail, and you said you're just doing events every day. You're traveling to every county in the state. You're listening to people. What are you hearing? Because, you know, the media tells us, you know, these are the top issues and they focus on certain things over and over and over and over again. Some of them are big issues. Some of them may be not as big, but they're hyping them up. When you're talking to voters across the spectrum in your state, what are the issues, what are the concerns that come up most often?
6: Well, you know, the economy is going to come up a great deal. The economy is going to come up because people have got to afford groceries. No gas prices was up. Gas prices was up. They came down some now, but they're going to go back up. I think when people get that their utility bill, they're going to see that their utility bill is probably double or triple. And you know, the, the food is still up. Trying to afford food, and you know, kids just started back to school. You see that that school supply costs more. So this economy is terrible. And yesterday you saw President out celebrating about uh, almost <laughs> saying that the the, the uh, economy has, Decrease and he having a party about it, it is terrible. You know, that's what is so sad that they've got you to believe. Don't believe your lying eyes. Don't believe uh, what you hear. That's not true. But I want people to know that this economy is still headed in the wrong direction. Another thing people worry about is crime. You see it every day on your television. That's what's so sad. You see crime that they picked up because they, they voted on these soft on, on crime judges. You know, judges that thinking that it's okay to make criminals heroes, make all men and women in blue like they're they're terrible people, and you know they're not supporting them. They don't have their backs, and that's one thing I am gonna do. I want the men and women in blue that I'm not just saying this because I'm running for office. But I will always have your back. I'll always support you, and that's what we need now is for our elected officials to support our men and women in blue. And then, and the third thing that they talk about is men and women's sports. The guys, senators, and whatnot that I'm running against voted to put men and women's sports. Well, people don't want that. They don't want men and women's sports. They want our kids to go to class and learn how to read and write, not go to class and worry about having wokeness in our school. And, uh, and those that, that are three of the major things people are talking about. And I want to just say this we're not a border state here in Georgia. We're not a border state. But one thing that people need to know is 70% of the drugs coming across the border goes through Atlanta, Georgia. It goes to Atlanta, Georgia. That is that is absolutely amazing to me. And when you listening to our vice president, Miss Harris, uh, the other day, he said the border is secured. Yep. And everybody know this border is wide open. And, you know, Senator not knows this border is wide open, but they continue to say this border is secured, and they continue to make you believe lies. When I mean, they're doing one terrible job in destroying not just the state of Georgia, but destroying this United States of America.
0: Herschel, I want to ask you one more question. Uh, Senator Warnock is your opponent, and recently we had Governor Kemp on the show. He's been on the show many times, and he was also had a few choice words about your opponent. He's, he's not a fan. Uh, Governor Kemp is running against Stacey Abrams, a very prominent woman in your state. Uh, a little while back, she said, and she and Warnock are peas in a pod, running on the same ticket, basically, on the Democratic side. Stacey Abrams said that Georgia is the worst state in the country to live in. And just as someone who is so linked to that state and is a hero in that state, and you know carried the torch for the for the flagship university in that state, I just wonder how you reacted to that when you heard Stacey Abrams call Georgia the worst place in the country to live.
6: Well, you know, I just said, why in the world is she running for governor here? Is this the worst place in America to run? And it's such a bad state why are you running for governor here? And, and, you know, one of the things that she has to deal with, and she needs to tell the people, why did she move that all-star game out of Atlanta? You hurt a lot of small businesses. And that's what uh, with my opponent, you know, he and Stacey Abrams and, uh, and, and, and President Biden, they're cut from the same cloth. Yep. They do the exact same thing. They try to use racism to advance themselves. Right now they try to use scare attack- tactics to get votes. And that's what they continue to do. They're trying to get votes. They're trying to scare people. They're trying to use these different tactics. But right now, Stacey Abrams moved also a game out of Atlanta, which hurt a lot of small businesses. They said that we're the worst state in America when yet you're running for office here. And her income has, has doubled as well. I don't know if people know that. You know, Senator Warnock's income, his fare has doubled since he got into office. Same thing with Stacey Abrams. And I said, guys, are they going to office to be paid or are they going to office to represent the people? Because I'm going up to Washington because I want to represent Georgia, not represent Joe Biden, not represent some part of it, represent the great people of Georgia. Herschel Walker
0: is a Georgia legend at UGA. And In his exploits with the Bulldogs, he won a Heisman Trophy, and in November he wants to win a U.S. Senate seat up against Senator Warnock. It's going to be a barn burner, a very close race. October 14th, the date is circled for that big debate. Herschel, wishing you luck, hope to have you back, and we'll talk soon. And for my friend Mary Catherine, I'll just say again, go dogs.
6: Hey, thank you so much. And I want to encourage everyone to go to TeamHerschel.com. And let's win this seat back for the great people of Georgia. And let me represent them in Georgia their next great senator. Herschel Walker,
0: on the Guy Benson Show, it's the happy hour, and we'll be right back.
6: The Guy
2: Benson Show. More next.
0: Happy hour, Guy Benson Show. Thanks for being here. Interesting conversation, I think, there with Herschel Walker. Right, You listen to some of the critics out there, and it's like, oh, the man cannot even say one coherent sentence about anything. Well, that's not my experience having just spoken to him for 15 minutes. And obviously some of that stuff is his stump speech, right? But how are you not stumping on the issue of the economy and inflation and crime and the border? Right. I think that was uh, I thought that was interesting, especially I wanted to ask him that question about Stacey Abrams. I know he's not running against her, but he and Kemp are sort of a team here at the top of the Republican ticket. And Warnock and and Abrams are in that sense, too. And for her to say what she said about Georgia based on his roots in that state and and what that state means to him and what he means to the state. uh, I just want to get his reaction there. I thought he gave a fantastic answer. That race is neck and neck down in Georgia. For our listeners down in Atlanta at Extra, I'll be down there soon in the next couple of weeks, actually, um, for a station event, and that'll be right before that big debate. And I think Herschel has to clear the plausible senator hurdle, right? That's what he has to do. And I think if he does that, I hope he prepares because you know this is this is tough business. Uh, I think that he is in a position where he could win. The last couple weeks of polling have gotten better for him uh, to the point that he's now in the lead. I saw a poll today in Wisconsin as Ron Johnson edging out to a bit of a lead in that state. Uh, In Nevada, I saw a poll that has Laxalt now ahead by a point. So it's tight, but these races are crucial with the Senate at stake. And we're covering it, of course, here every day on the Guy Benson Show. We will be right back.
2: talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson.
0: It is the Guy Benson Show. It is the happy hour. Earlier today on the program, we caught up with our friend and New York Post columnist, Carol Markowitz, about a number of issues, including the recent gaslighting on the left about kids and schools, school closures back during the pandemic, and much more. Here's part of my conversation with Carol. Just sort of a breathtaking spectacle with Mm -hmm. the administration gathering a whole bunch of people, weeks of planning to celebrate the so-called Inflation Reduction Act literally hours after the new inflation report had come out and was dreadful. And you just kind of wonder, was there any conversation inside the White House saying, maybe do we pull the plug on this thing? Should we have scheduled this perhaps yesterday instead of today? The result was a split screen for the ages, it feels like.
1: Right. And you know, the thing is that they didn't need the report to know that inflation was still going so poorly. Um, It's everywhere. You feel it everywhere. You see it everywhere. The prices are so high. You can listen to Cardi B talk about it. It's literally all over the place where everybody knows that the prices are astronomical and they're not coming down and nothing is improving. But what I think that the Biden administration counts on and to some degree gets is media cover. They get this cover from the press. That they won't be mocked about it. They it won't be the the subject of late night, you know, comedy shows. Um, it 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 will, you know, just be part of their uh, messaging. And I don't know, you know, what we can do to improve on that because that's just something that they that they do actually get from the press.
0: Yeah, I'd say generally that's true. I think yesterday was so flagrantly bad. That even, for example, CNN, that clip was going around online of them cutting away and remarking on the disconnect between what had been announced a few hours prior and what they were trying to sort of, you know, hoot and holler for on the South Lawn. And I, I think sometimes it takes real effort to get the mainstream media to cover a Democratic administration that badly, especially so close to an election, but I think they pulled it off yesterday. I mean, that was a real stroke of anti-genius by the brain trust over there.
1: You know, but I am seeing already reporters on Twitter saying things like, well, yeah, of course, inflation is not better yet. This isn't the act that's going to reduce inflation. This is just an announcement of something that's going to help. It obviously can't help yet. (laughs) So, I mean, they, they are still, you know, just making it so that the Biden administration doesn't look super foolish because, you know, that is how they looked.
0: I mean, to me, they can spin and the reporters can maybe try to soften it a little bit. A month ago, they passed with no Republican votes something that they're calling the Inflation Reduction Act. That was a month ago. And they claimed that it would reduce inflation and help immediately, and then the very next inflation report was terrible. And they held a celebration event on literally that day. I mean, it's just – it's pretty remarkable. And leading up to that, the spin had to start relatively early. We played some sound from Corinne Jean-Pierre at the podium. She was gaslighting saying, well, really, if you think about it, prices are flat. And a lot of this stuff on reduction of inflation is historic. She's been churning out a fair amount of high octane gaslighting recently on the border yesterday. She said that the Biden administration has done a better job than the Trump administration securing the border because she said Trump only tried to build a wall and couldn't get it done. Whose fault was that? Democrats. She then went on to attack Republican obstructionism, which made absolutely no sense. But she's actually trying to say that the Democrats are better on border security than Republicans, even though we remember how the Trump administration put together a suite of successful policies, got their arms around the problem in a major way. And all of that got brushed to the side and, and binned by the Biden administration for political reasons. And the result is a crisis of historic proportion shattering records. So if you want to, you can comment on that gaslighting from – Inflation to the border, but there's also education, which I know we want to talk about here, unless you want to jump in on the border.
1: Yeah. Well, so what I wanted to say about the border is a lot of issues in America are 50-50 issues, but the border and securing the border is just not one of them. You know, whether you want a secure border becomes an 80-20-90-10 issue. There's very few people, even like Bernie Sanders will say, you know, we must stop illegal immigration. Otherwise, if we have an open border, you know, we're we're just going to be overrun. And that's, you know, a quote from Bernie. That's not me saying that. So it's, It's not something that they can um, massage and and just hope it goes away. This is a real thing to a lot of people. And the whole busing migrants to other – to liberal cities is making that issue even more, um, you know, unbalanced than it was before. Nobody wants this to continue. Nobody.
4: And
0: if you're right that it's an 80-20 issue, and I think generally you are right, especially when you get down to the core question – What's so striking is the Democratic Party and the leadership of the Democratic Party, including in a supposedly moderate, less progressive administration led by a guy like Joe Biden, they're on the side of the 20. It seems like they are constantly walking on eggshells to not tick off the hardcore elements of the activist base that are at the fringe of that 20 percent, and yet they are the folks that they're allowing to call the shots on this. And, I mean, it seems like a very big opening for Republicans to really go after them. And I know there's a lot of issues swirling out there, but uh, sometimes I think it's up to Republicans to get focused and aggressive on this stuff because the vulnerabilities are there.
1: Absolutely. You're absolutely right. Re- Republicans this should be an easy thing that they run on um, and absolutely should have some kind of action points on what they will do differently than Democrats on this.
0: Yeah, and when the response is from the White House, well, actually, we're better on securing the border than Trump, nobody believes that, right? They don't believe it. When Kamala Harris goes on NBC and says the border's secure, which she did on Sunday, you can see in her eyes, you can hear it in her voice, she doesn't believe it. Jean-Pierre flips to a page in her binder and just reads this ludicrous sentence, and it goes out there into the world, nobody believes it. And I think that's the tell, when their responses are so weak – It means that they really do have nothing. They have nothing better to offer. So Mm -hmm. press the advantage. Prosecute the case. That full interview with Carol Markowitz available on our podcast, the whole show, on demand, every day for free. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, it is the home stretch. I'm out here in Los Angeles, as I've mentioned a few times. And last night I did something that I always find very relaxing, at least As long as I don't do it too often, it's a treat. I'll explain and we'll discuss when we come back.
2: For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com.
0: Home stretch on the Guy Benson Show, Wednesday edition. From sunny Southern California, thank you for listening. GuyBensonShow.com, our website, podcast-free when the show is over. That's on demand every day. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'll be on Fox News at night this evening in the midnight hour, Eastern Time, on Fox News Channel. So hope to see you there. Or if it's a little late, you can always set your DVR for that. Well, as I've said now a lot today and yesterday and again tomorrow, I'm in Los Angeles. I have an event today, a speech. So last night I had to prepare for it. I had a lot of stuff that I needed to do, but I was famished. I had done the show. West Coast time just throws me off. Everything's just too early. It doesn't all make sense to me. So I hadn't eaten, and I knew that I wouldn't be able to focus unless I had really you know, fed myself, and it was still quite early. It was like 4.30 I said, do I go to dinner like a senior citizen, early bird special here, and go by myself to dinner in the middle of the afternoon, basically? And the answer was yes. I went to an Italian restaurant. I will say, I mean, inflation is crazy. What I paid for this meal just for me is just wild. But I sat there by myself. I chatted with the waitress, who was very nice from the Midwest, and Other than that, I was on my phone a little bit. I was taking a few photographs, but I was just taking in the scenery. I was sitting outside, had two glasses of wine over the course of the meal, and it was just very peaceful. I know some people hate the idea of eating by themselves, especially in public. I think if I had to do that all the time, I wouldn't love it because I'm a social person. But from time to time, there's almost nothing better than treating yourself to a meal out, just you. And I feel the same way about going to the movies. I love going to a movie alone. I get my Coke Zero. I get my peanut M&Ms. I settle in, and it's just me. It's just like a little time out from life in the theater. And sometimes I feel the same way about eating alone, and it was great. And I had a little espresso at the end of the meal, came back, did all my work, got ready for the presentation, and away we go. And Christine, I feel like you are not someone who would thrive eating by yourself. I feel like – or you would need to make a new friend and basically chat with them the whole time. I feel like it's hard to picture you quietly sitting at a corner table eating and just enveloped in your own thoughts. Am I wrong about that?
7: You're not wrong because as you were speaking about this, I thought, oh, I could definitely do this because I'll just make friends. But I guess that's not the point. That's not the point. Dining out alone. So no, I wouldn't. I've never actually never been to a movie alone.
0: Oh, it's so good.
7: Hmm. I think I'd be a little nervous. I don't know why. Movie theaters scare me. Nervous? Yeah. I, I don't really like movie theaters that much. I think we've had this conversation before. They I make don't, me I don't nervous. Really,
0: I don't really remember that, but it's also hard to keep track of all of your neuroses, so it's entirely possible that we have. But But what about dining alone? Could you... Get on board with that, or would you be uh, scared?
7: No, I would not be scared. I'm actually, um, I, I, I don't do it often, but I look forward to the next time because I just know I'd make a new friend. So if, for me, it would still be like a social evening out, I, whether I'm friends with the bartender, the waitress, yeah. or whoever's sitting next to me on. Oh, the business. I bet you,
0: you'd be friends with the bartender. I guarantee you that.
7: <laughs> so I, I wouldn't look at it as really dining alone. I don't think especially if I didn't have my phone or something, I don't think I could just sit at a table at a restaurant eating by myself. And I don't know. No, you're right. Mm-hmm. Not my cup of tea.
0: Although it's you've now changed your position on this since the morning meeting because you and I are actually coming back out here to California in a couple of weeks and we'll be telling people all about why and when and all of that coming up soon. But you're going to be accompanying me, <laughs> Gulp, on that trip and – you said, "Oh yeah, if you're if you're busy, I really I'll definitely do that. I'll be eating by myself. I'm looking forward to eating by myself." And I said, "I am also looking forward to you eating by yourself out in California." Got a big laugh from quiet Wyatt. And then you immediately realized that I was poking fun at you and you said, "No, no, no, you're eating with me." And I think that's probably what I'll end up getting roped into, right?
7: Oh, of course. I'm already looking up restaurants for us and trying to figure out if I need to make reservations or not. But yeah, obviously, unless you have plans with other people, um, you and I are going to be dining together. And I stand by, I said I was looking forward to eating alone, but I didn't understand what you meant. I meant I'm looking forward to meeting new people when I go out to dinner by myself.
0: Yeah, it's, it's a different approach. And I'll, look, I chatted up the waitress for a while, probably like a total of 10 or 15 minutes. She was Very nice, sort of had worked at some very cool places, but much of the meal was just me sitting, enjoying, thinking about the food, eating it, enjoying the temperature. Because here's the thing, California has a lot of flaws, and I would not want to live out here for many reasons. In Southern California, the weather, it it makes sense why people sometimes stay, even if they hate so many other things here. The weather is pretty spectacular. Yesterday was no exception Again, today, there's a lot of consistency there. But then you're sort of like, can I keep the lights on? Will the government come after me? Uh, Are the taxes going to go up yet again? There's all those other concerns that would make this, to me, inhospitable. It's a place to live. But I'll give them the weather. I will absolutely give them that. Meanwhile, Christine, very quickly, we talked about this earlier in the week, your newfound love for NFL football. And it has come to my attention, you've mentioned it now a few times, you are betting on multiple games. So you're already gambling on a sport that you don't really understand. You're calling uniforms costumes on the air, for example. Do you think, and again, this is just some unsolicited life advice, do you think that you might want to at least become like a well-versed fan of the sport who understands the landscape before you start losing money? Betting on the games?
7: Um, actually, I feel like I'm pretty well versed on the game. I don't know if you know this about me, but I'm pretty smart and I'm pretty quick. And I honestly probably could answer so many questions. You, if you're you... a
0: very stable genius, is what I'm hearing here. Very, very
7: yeah. even keeled, stable, smart, quick girl. That's who I am. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, so the problem is yes, okay, the betting. The problem how is. Many,
0: how many points does a team get on a safety? don't ask dan (laughs) you just asked
7: sorry 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 i gave it to you. you asked me the one thing i don't know
0: no i i didn't i picked one thing at random and you you cheated and then you tried to deny it so again that's just like a case in point here i think that maybe the gambling i don't gamble on sports period as a lifelong sports fan but if if that's going to be one of your vices i just think maybe wait till you know some things
7: well, I guess so, but I'm, I just want to point out, I, that was like the one thing I really didn't know. I really how didn't... many games, all
0: right, how about this? How many games have you, well, how about this? How many games are in the regular season for an NFL team?
7: So it goes from like the end of August until Super Bowl. So, I don't know, one game a week? So, 8, 12, 16? I mean,
0: okay, the, you know, good math. Um, is that how was I games, right? How many games, have, yeah, how many games have you bet on so far? Uh, two. Are you in the red or in the black?
7: Black is good. Red is bad, right? That's right. Yeah, I'm in the red.
0: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Are you 0 for 2, actually, on those games?
7: Yes. I bet that the... You bet on the
0: Lions, didn't you?
7: Yes. Yeah,
0: yeah. See, I mean, that, like, already, red flag. Big red flag. You're, you're like, opening your NFL fandom. You're like, you know what? I love football now. Let me go out and place a bet on Detroit. It's just... But, it's a warning sign.
7: But did you not watch Hard Knocks? I mean, this team was ready. They had it all. But the thing that they got me with was the heart of the team and the coach. Mm-hmm. I, I know, really, I know tru- you've,
0: you've mentioned this, but that doesn't really matter in wins and losses. And then as they do, they lost. And you lost your money. I just feel like you need to save that money for another vacuum cleaner, Christine.
7: Very, very funny. Um, I didn't I didn't decide yet if I'm going to bet on tomorrow. It's the Chiefs and the who? The Chiefs and the Raiders, right? No? Chargers. Chargers. Chargers, Chargers. Who are the Raiders? Okay.
0: That's oh. uh, formerly Oakland, now Las Vegas.
7: So L.A. gets two teams?
0: That's right, after having none for a very long time.
7: Well, how do you decide? Like, how does each – does, like, the state say we want this amount of teams, or how does that work?
0: No, it's, it's not a state thing. Well, I mean, think about the Yankees and the Mets, Right. The Giants and the Jets. L.A.'s a huge market. I don't know if they really have the market to sustain both of these teams based on fan base and attendance and all of that, but they're going for it. Um, see, now we're off on a tangent. You're asking good, interesting questions, Christine. I just feel like these are questions that you should, over the course of years, learn the answers to. I want to and know everything then, now. Yeah, but just it's like, I want it now, Veruca Salt, but we have to, like, it's a process here. And then maybe one day you can get your golden ticket. I'm really reaching here so, for the uh, Chocolate Factory references. So are you
7: saying I should stick to betting on the ponies and don't oh. move over to football just yet?
0: I mean, I'd prefer you bet on ponies than, you know, execute them, which is part of what you do, right? Part of your rap sheet. So I'll leave it at that. I'm just, I'm just not a better in general. I think gambling, you've got to pick your vices, and I don't know if you need another vice, sports gambling, uh, just friendly advice here from the other coast. We will do one more show here from L.A. tomorrow. Looking forward to that same time as always right here. Thank you for listening. Have a wonderful evening. It's the Guy Benson Show.
7: Hot, hut, whatever.